Hello friends, hope you're all doing well. So in this third episode of the Deep History of Civilization series, we will continue investigating the themes we have been exploring in the first two lectures of the series and investigate the evolution of different forms of human society, especially in the post-Holocene era or the era following the Ice Age. So as we discussed in the previous two episodes, by about 4000 BC, numerous agriculture-based settlements had spread out across the entire arc from the eastern Mediterranean through Mesopotamia to northern India. And it was the use of fire which had advanced humanity to a higher plane of evolution. Now in this era, the potter's kiln became in a sense the first laboratory of mankind. From the kiln came more durable containers, clay utensils, and fired bricks, that is mud bricks which were fired in, in the kiln to create stronger buildings. And gradually also metallurgy was developed. So the potter's kiln in a sense gave human beings the material, almost solid material to create the rudiments of more advanced civilizations. And this began to happen from around 5000 BC to 4000 BC as civilization took a leap. Then the era from around 4000 to 3000 BC was also one of revolutionary transitions in human socio-political organization. Remember, as society was becoming more and more complex, so you needed better and better forms of organizing a society. And in a sense, this is when the first polities began to emerge. We might call them proto-polities because they are not exactly the kind of polities we associate with more advanced advanced societies or advanced states. So this is an era of proto-states. So during this time, it must be noted, there was a constant interaction between two types of civilization or two forms of civilization. So there was, of course, this settled civilization of farming cultures or settled people, which in the previous lecture I called the domus-based cultures. And there were the moving people or the nomadic pastoralist people, which I called the ordos-based cultures. And this is something I discussed in the first episode and also discussed world systems theory in the second uh, lecture about how we can classify these different cultures. Importantly, the interactions between domus-based and ordos-based cultures across these wide spaces, remember most of the world was still open and unsettled. These interactions created the first global networks of trade. Now this is something I will explore in depth in the next lecture. But just to get a broad overview, these interactions, for example, carried luxury materials such as seashells from the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf further and further inland. In addition to this, there was a trickle in trade of metal ores and gemstones such as lapis lazuli from the Pamir Mountains, which are in northeast Afghanistan. These rare materials would travel thousands and thousands of kilometers inland and were found as far as the Anatolian Peninsula and the Caspian Sea. So these networks of trade were being created through the interaction and the carriers of these trade were the order space nomadic cultures. So this kind of synergy or symbiosis was developing between nomads and settled people which would carry on and be an enduring theme throughout history. So the end consumers of most of this trade were the fast growing agricultural domus people who remember were getting more and more sophisticated and the societies were growing and becoming more and more complex. The intermediaries were the nomads in their steppe and mountain routes, 
and also some fishermen or boating uh, communities or various boat people who carried on coastal trade and coastal interaction. Now, we will uh, investigate this deeper in the next lecture, like I said, but for this lecture, it is important to understand that the demand for luxury materials shows that there was rising affluence in society. And most importantly, there was the beginning of what anthropologists call social differentiation. In other words, there was a rise of the elite as society was becoming more and more hierarchical. Remember, we are talking about domus, agriculture-based societies. So... And this would gradually lead to the emergence of states, which is something we begin to see from around 3000 BC, which was a consequence of the rising power of different elite groups. Now to understand this ideology of the state or why states begin to form from around this era, let us focus on ancient Mesopotamia. So let us begin by narrating the opening verses of a story or a myth from ancient Mesopotamia. Now this myth was written, from, uh, written around 2500 BC we have a tablet from around 2500 BC that we get this myth from. It could have been an older myth. And according to the great scholar of early Mesopotamian civilization and literature, Samuel Noah Kramer, this is an important creation myth of the Sumerians. So in fact, it might be much older. So this, this, this is called the dialogue between sheep and grain. And it goes as follows. So in the beginning, there was nothing. There was no domesticated sheep. There were no varieties of farmable grains. Not grain which grows in 30 days. Not grain which grows in 40 or 50 days. Not small grain from the mountains. And no holy grain from the holy lands. The people in those times had no bread to eat. No clothes to spend from the wool of sheep. They went about naked in barren lands. They ate grass with their mouths like wild herd animals and drank water from puddles and ditches. In those times, there was nothing, not even lords and kings. Then the gods created sheep and grain, and civilization was born. After they were created in the Genesis chamber of the gods in the heavens, sheep and grain were sent down to the realms of men by the great god Enlil. But only after he was implored to do so by the noblest of the gods, forever the well-wisher of mankind, the great god Enki. It was also Enki who delivered to men both the sheep and the grain, and most importantly the knowledge to raise the former in enclosed sheepfolds and plant the latter in ploughed fields. So in a sense it was Enki who invented civilization, both the Domus type of civilization and the Ordos type of civilization. After the opening passages, we get the actual debate between sheep and grain, with the two sides being represented by what we could think of as the animist spirit of each, in the form of a shepherd boy and a peasant girl, which uh, kind of makes the story more charming. For it is written, Sheep was a shepherd brimming with charm, and grain was a beautiful girl who, as she lifted her head, was suffused with the bounty of heaven. They both had a radiant appearance, perhaps made more so, by being in the presence of each other. So in subsequent verses, sheep and grain have a back-and-forth dialogue about each other's value for civilization. While sheep make some valid points to open, grain is the final victor of the debate. So what clinches the argument for grain? The grain tells sheep, 
I am your better. I take precedence over you. I am the glory of the lights of the land. I grant my power to the Sajur Saj, a member of the cultic personnel of Inanna. He fills the palace with awe and people spread his fame to the borders of the land. I am the gift of the Anuna gods. I am central to all kings. So now the power of green becomes clear. And not just that, green also says, when a warrior goes to war, I give him power. I foster the spirit of neighborliness among neighbors and I settle disputes. So of course, the judgment of Enki, the bestower of the laws of civilization is clear. Enki says to Enlil, Father Enlil, sheep and grain should be brother and sister. They should stand together, but of the two, grain shall be the greater. Let sheep fall on his knees before grain. In understanding this verdict, we need to also examine the Sumerian idea of civilization. When sheep is being relegated here, what is also being rejected is the pastoralist way of life, or the way of the Ordos. Breeding animals can be a supplementary activity for a domus-based culture, but it can never be the mode around which society is organized in this more advanced state of civilization, at least not a state-level society. Why is that? For the simple logic of accumulation. Now James Scott, whom we discussed in the first lecture, proposes that it was the grain-growing economy which was integral to the development of early states. Now this becomes clearer when we read this hypothesis alongside the proposition of world systems theory, which we discussed in lecture 2, that accumulation by ruling elites is the foundation of their power. So grains have a peculiar quality as a food source, which makes them particularly useful for accumulation. A grain grown in fields can be easily gathered by harvesting the field just once in a season, at the end of the season, and as the text uh, we discussed above also says, it can be stored in storehouses or granaries. Both the collection and storage of grains is therefore easier than other food sources. Of course, large quantities of fruit, vegetables or meat cannot be stored as easily as grain. They easily spoil without refrigeration, which we do not get until our times. Animals can be kept, but then again, they require sheepfolds and pens and grazing grounds, which generally lie outside the city walls. And whatever is inside the city walls is easier to control and easier to organize. Therefore, grains become more important. Grains which can be accumulated in protected granaries. In ancient civilizations, these granaries played a similar role to state-controlled banks in our times. And similarly, they were the sites of political power. So this explains, in a sense, the materialist understanding of the evolution of states. But we also need to keep in mind that we often look for materialist explanations for all historical processes. But for the people who built these first civilizations, every act was also a religious act. So it's all tied together. So according to one scholar, if we only listen to materialists, we would have to conclude that all our ancestors ever did was eat, excrete, and reproduce. Well, from the story of the sheep and the grain, it is evident that these fundamental requirements of civilized life were seen as a gift of the gods. But they were not just gifts. 
So take these two further lines in the dialogue. They brought wealth to the assembly. They fulfilled the ordinances of the gods. And importantly, it is highlighted that by the will of the gods, the power of grain is transferred to the Sajur Saj of the goddess Inanna, which refers to the cultic members of the goddess or worshippers, the organized priesthood or worshippers who serve the goddess Inanna. So these gifts of civilization also created the divine order of society, or what Aristotle would call the great chain of being. Now this concept itself is uh, from the Middle Ages in Europe, but was derived from Plato and Aristotle and other thinkers. So this great chain of being is something that a lot of uh, scholars believed in, a lot of visionaries of society believed in, till not very long ago. But returning to ancient times, it should be kept in mind that these texts were written by scribes who were part of the bureaucracy and perhaps were even associated with the temples in a more mature phase of civilization. As I mentioned, it was written around 2500 BC. So they tell us of the beliefs and ideology of the state of the Sumerians in Mesopotamia at that stage. But also in a sense tells us about how they thought that civilization began and what was the basis and foundation for civilization. Remember, even 2500 BC is very, very long ago. Now, since grain was the gift of the gods, and not just that, even the land on which the grain was grown was in fact created by the gods. The gods created everything, the world, the land, and everything on it. And as the priests were the representatives of the gods on earth, it is not surprising that they would be the chosen representatives of the gods who would also rule the earth on their behalf. So, putting this all together... In early years of state formation in Mesopotamia, the responsibility of accumulation was initially associated with temple bureaucracies. Temples were also closely associated with the process of growing and accumulating grains or harvesting them. They hired labor, allocated fields to farm, and maintained records of everything, and this is in fact how writing was developed. Also note, Grain says, I foster the spirit of neighborliness among neighbors, and I settle disputes. This again is important because it reflects how a larger sense of community was being facilitated as a consequence of these emerging patterns of accumulation centered on this common institution of the temple. So as the Sumerian pantheon grew to more villages, as the Sumerian temple network grew in more cities, so more and more people were forged into a sense of community, at the center of which were the gods of Sumeria who had bestowed the blessings of grain on the people of the land. Now, the interaction between production, accumulation, and religion is vital for understanding how and what kind of political order emerges in any state. And this, of course, should be understood alongside the human dimension of geohistory, land, terrain, and territory, which I have discussed in part two of Art of Geopolitics, available on the Caspian Report channel. Now, the institution of the temple was developed in the Sumerian city of Eridu, perhaps as far back as 6000 BC, and 2500 years later it became integral for state formation in all of Mesopotamia, that is from around 3500 BC. These long cycles of continuity and causality are something we begin to trace in deep history, and this is something we will see very often in history. Ancient traditions come back and become useful for state formation, for politics, for geopolitics, and these cycles, they repeat 
and deep traditions, they emerge in different times and different eras. So we will trace this. We will trace this going forward in history. Let us turn now for a moment to Egypt, where we also see deep history in action, where a model of kingship which began to form at least as far back as 4400 BC culminated in the formation of an empire from around 3000 BC. So that is a 1,400-year gestation period. So in a grave in El Omari near Cairo, archaeologists found dating to 4,400 BC, a simple wooden staff with knobbed ends. This artifact is the first of its kind representing a symbol which would evolve into the shepherd's crook and become associated with the first king of all Egypt, Narmer. Narmer adopted an evolved form of the shepherd's staff as the symbol of his kingship and royal authority. His empire was founded around 3000 BC. The shepherd's crook, along with numerous other symbols and strategies of rule developed in Egypt, would be adopted by numerous kings in many lands throughout the ages of history till not very, very long ago, including the shepherd's staff, which would become the scepter, which you see in a lot of royal imagery. And just the idea of a leader of men being a shepherd guides his flock. This again is something that comes from Egypt. And of course might have been concurrently developed in other cultures as well. You see these parallels as well in history. But in the beginning, much like in Sumeria, patterns of accumulation constructed around the growing of grains and organized by temple or religious bureaucracies, had been emerging along the bends and curves of the Nile and its rich alluvial delta over millennia in the post-Holocene era, especially since the end of the Younger Dryas. Now, movement of people into the rich agricultural zones along the Nile had converged from two primary directions, down from the Sinai Peninsula, carrying some influence from West Asia, and up from the south, carrying influence from the land which would come to be known as Nubia, a third direction was likely across the Red Sea from Arabia, and we will uh, trace this. There is some archaeological evidence for this, especially from uh, a site known as the Wadi Hamamat. We'll talk about this in the next lecture. So as these various people settled into available lands, so began the processes of niche construction and habitation. They interacted with each other, united by the flow of the Nile, and despite that diversity of origins reflected in their worship of different gods, they gradually began to develop an overarching Nilotic or Nile-based culture, as these gods began to become associated or even related with one another through the formation of mythology or cosmology, or let's just call it religion. This was slow, evolutionary, and organic, much like in Sumeria. So in the richest lands in the delta of the Nile, patterns of accumulation were in fact very similar to Eridu and Sumeria. The initial rulers of cities such as Day and Pei, which are ancient cities, were identified not by their own names, but simply as souls who were worshippers of the gods, god so-and-so and god so-and-so. While understanding the early structure of society developing in Egypt is something we might return to later, we are more concerned now with the geopolitical processes occurring from around 3500 BC, in which successive kings of upper, that is southern Egypt, led campaigns of war leading to the formation of a unified civilizational state of ancient Egypt which would persist till it was conquered by the Persian Empire and dealt a further blow by Alexander of Macedonia, followed by dismantling by the Romans. Remember, this is 
a 3,000 year period during which the state survived. So according to Robert Gilpin, returning to a little bit of theory, we might call states coalitions of elites. So the aggregation and disaggregation of elites through internal politics and war is the fundamental process of change in geopolitical history. Remember, geopolitics is about world power distribution, and this happens through war, and what war results in is the aggregation or disaggregation of elites. Now, how does aggregation happen? Generally through war, as I mentioned, as different groups are conquered by their conquerors. And disaggregation happens when the center becomes weak. There is civil war or breakdown of the state due to geoeconomic reasons. And elites who were gathered into one cabal or one group disaggregate and then form their own states, form their own world power distributions. So geoeconomics is often the cause of this, of this disaggregation, as was the case in USSR. Historically, we will see that this is more common than we think and even might be more common than the first, that is even more common than war, and is often the reason for war. Economics often leads to disintegration through war. That is for future lectures. Returning to Egypt. Egypt, beginning from around 3500 BC, was unified into an empire. A pattern of accumulation was consolidated, centered on a ruling dynasty and a capital city was built, which was in Memphis, near the Nile Delta. The unification of Egypt was achieved through what I've discussed in another lecture, uh, through a process of divine geopolitics. The king who unified Egypt claimed the authority of the gods. Remember, there are different gods in different lands. So both his native gods, different lands around the Nile, of different people who have settled there. So he claims the authority of his native gods of southern Egypt, and also the gods of other coalitions who choose to side with him, and ultimately becoming the god-king, the precursor of the pharaoh. So remember what Robert Gilpin said about states, they are formed through aggregation of elites. So this is what the king of Egypt does. He aggregates elites through divine geopolitics, that is, claiming the authority of the gods, his native gods and the gods of the people who choose to side with him. So this is important because... We spoke about Sumeria earlier and Mesopotamia. So while in its initial stages a mythology might spread across a land, as people meet in distant camps and share stories, huddled around bonfires, suspended between an endless darkness of night on earth and a glorious ocean of stars in the sky, storytellers are the first creators of mythologies, which are then appropriated by priests who become their gatekeepers. So, the spread of culture which creates a society of communities is organic. And turning to the second lecture, I speak about society of communities and society of states. So, the spread of culture which creates a society of communities is organic as it happens for centuries, as it happened for centuries in Sumeria and Egypt. But as states emerge, the gatekeepers take control of the culture and create what are essentially organized, uh, organized hierarchical structures. So the spread of culture which creates a society of communities is organic, as it happened for centuries in Sumeria and Egypt. But as states emerge, the gatekeepers take control of the culture and create what are essentially organized hierarchical structures. Using the material of the culture, just like the physical material that we mentioned in the beginning of the lecture, just like fire is used to forge physical material, mud, into harder and harder substances, 
to create a more solid society. Similarly, loser culture, disaggregated culture, local cultures are taken and they are formed into a unified mythology or a religion to create an ideology of the state. So this happens simultaneously. In Egypt, the god king, assisted by a coalition of priests, could impose a top-down religio-imperial order, a culture that he had forged from these various Nilotic or Nile-based cultures, on the entire nation, which was then molded in his image. Remember, he became the new god-king. The palace became supreme over the temple. And in fact, the palace was a temple of the gods on earth. Now, this, interestingly, is something that never actually happened in Mesopotamia. In Mesopotamia, there were no large kingdom builders like, like Narmer in the initial years of state formation. Remember, we're talking about the period from 3500 to 3000 BC. But gradually, from around 3000 BC, there emerged smaller lords of cities called Lugals, or big men. These Lugals could initially have been leaders of temples, uh, temple soldiers or temple guards chosen by temple bureaucracies or the high priests of the temples. But gradually they became more powerful to claim their position at the top of the hierarchy of the state. Because Lugals were where the physical power rested and because these Lugals of different cities were more or less equally powerful in Mesopotamia for most of its history till the rise of the Assyrians, order was generally decentralized compared to Egypt. Now, there were some empires in between. There was an empire from 2300 BC of Sargon. But most of these empires had to contend with powerful city-states and would collapse under pressure after a few generations. Not only that, they also had to contend with temple bureaucracies and high priests and temple assemblies. Whenever the Lugal of a city was weakened, the temple would assert its power over the palace. As a consequence, Mesopotamia was culturally more vibrant and innovative. Remember, there was no order imposed from the top, but was less unified in terms of its political order. Egypt, while a consolidated state, was what is unarguably the most conservative society in human history. It remained almost unchanged for thousands of years. So this is where we'll end this lecture and return to our exploration of deep history in the next one. The important takeaway from this lecture is to keep in mind the interaction of God, that is religion, grain, that is subsistence and wealth, and government, that is the functioning of the state. Balance of power between the three in this triad has remained an enduring theme in history across civilizations and remains so in fact in our times. So many of these forms through which order is imposed, order is created in states, was invented in the initial years of state formation in these early civilizations. To this is added the conflict between organic culture, which emerges naturally from within societies as an evolutionary process, and artificial, rigid, hierarchical culture, which is imposed by high priests in collaboration with state power from the top down. This too remains a theme in our times and is a continuity of deep history we can trace back to 5,000 years. So thank you for listening and hope to join you again in the next lecture.